Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We've got a special episode of Decoder today. I'm talking to Sacha Nadella, the CEO and chairman of Microsoft. Sacha has always been one of my favorite tech execs to talk to, and Microsoft has some big news for us to discuss. It announced Windows 11 yesterday, which comes with an all-new design, a bunch of new features, and the ability to run Android apps, which is a pretty big deal. That's all wrapped up in some big changes to how apps are distributed on Windows. Microsoft is opening up the Windows App Store, allowing developers to put more kinds of apps in the store, including other app stores. And it's allowing developers to bypass the fees in the store if they want to use their own payment systems. Now, if you've been listening to Decoder or reading The Verge, you know there's a lot of controversy about Apple's various app store fees and the control it has over the developers on its platforms. There are lawsuits, there are bills in Congress, there are some unhappy Europeans. Nadella and Microsoft are explicitly positioning Windows as the opposite, saying it's more open and that the goal of Windows is to allow other companies to build big businesses and platforms of their own without Microsoft getting in the way. If you think that sounds like a pretty intense role reversal for Apple and Microsoft, well, you're not wrong. 20 years ago, Microsoft was facing down the antitrust regulators while the Mac was becoming the more open platform. But I was curious how Nadella felt about it, how he thinks about Windows as a platform and Microsoft's responsibilities to that platform, and how he thinks the various antitrust bills in Congress will affect Microsoft's plans for the future. This conversation got into some pretty weedsy details pretty fast. It's one of the reasons I like talking to Satya. So a couple notes before we start. Well, more than a couple. You're going to hear him talk about Azure and the Edge a lot. Azure is one of Microsoft's most important businesses. It's the cloud computing platform that competes with Amazon AWS. And if cloud computing is about the computers far away from you in data centers, the Edge is about the computers closest to you. In this case, Windows PCs. You'll also hear Sasha mention aggregators a lot in the context of the Windows Store. He's talking about places in the user interface where lots of people show up and then are directed to the other apps and services they need. This is a reference to Ben Thompson's aggregation theory, which actually comes up on Decoder all of the time. You'll hear him say NUI, which stands for natural user interfaces like voice and gestures, POSIX, which is a set of operating system standards, WSL, which is a part of Windows that lets you run Linux. You'll hear him talk about PWAs, which are progressive web apps, and UWPs, which are universal Windows platform apps, and HoloLens, which is Microsoft's augmented reality headset. And you'll hear him mention a guy named Pat. Pat is Pat Gelsinger, the new CEO of Intel. This one's deep. I think you're going to like it. 
All right, Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. Here we go. Satya Nadella, you are the CEO and now the chairman of Microsoft. Welcome to Decoder. Great to be with you, Nile. Microsoft announced Windows 11 today. There's a lot to talk about, but I want to start with some personal news, as they say. You, you only recently became the chairman as well as the CEO of Microsoft. What does that actually mean to be the chairman? Well, I mean, the reality is, as you know, when it comes to corporate governance in the United States, at least, uh, it's really the lead independent director who has uh, full authority over all of the people who are part of the management, including me and my compensation and my performance and the right, you know, the, basically they hire and fire me. So the independent directors are the folks who have the governance. So if anything, the way I interpret even any change here is fundamentally to say, how do we bring the management team and the board together on a sort of the discussion around what is Microsoft's purpose, strategy, how do we hold ourselves accountable uh, as a team. So orchestrating it, uh, as somebody best described it to me, is maybe I should attend more meetings or more committee <laughs> meetings. But I think of this as just a natural outgrowth of what I've been doing for the last seven years. Uh, but there's no real change, quite frankly, around the rigor of corporate governance and who is truly got the hire and fire authority on the CEO. And that's the independent directors of the Microsoft board. You led right into my next question, which is, who's your boss? To whom are you most accountable? To the board of directors and the lead independent director in some sense, right? Because if you sort of think about it, if your boss is defined as the person who ultimately can hold you accountable, it's the direct, the independent directors of the Microsoft uh, board. Yeah. I just think that, you know, the CEO of Microsoft is one of the masters of the universe. And I, I found myself really wanting to ask you who your boss was. I ask every executive who comes on to Decoder this question, what is your decision-making framework? Microsoft is a vast business. You have multiple lines of business, multiple billion plus dollar lines of business. How do you make decisions? I sort of try to simplify this. And this is maybe you and I have talked about this in the past. I've had this framework, which I've been consistent with for, you know, ever since I became CEO. It starts with mission, it ends with culture. And in between, there are pieces, which is around what's our worldview, what's our strategy. So I think of the things that are constant as that sense of purpose and mission and culture and the things that are temporal are, you know, worldviews and strategies. So to your point about the decision-making framework, anything we do has to be aligned with that first question, which is, is this something uh, that makes sense given who we are as a company? And more importantly, if we go about doing that, does it add unique value in the world, right? So is that something that both differentiates us competitively and is that something that's useful for people in the world? So that's, to me, uh, been the most helpful way to even businesses we are in. Like when we say, what does the CEO do? They have to pick and choose which businesses you're in. Then the other one they have to also do is set standards on what cultural values internally as experienced in the lived experience and so those are the two things I sort of go back to all the time. Let's talk about a big decision then, because several years ago, you and I were talking and you said, you know, Windows, we could just rename it Azure Edge if people would let us, right? It's just an extension of our big business, which is Azure. We're in a mobile first, cloud first world. In 2019, uh, I think you said to Wired, the operating system is no longer the most important layer for us. 
But today we're talking Windows 11 was announced. I listened to you and Panos Panay, who's the chief product officer at Microsoft, discuss how the pandemic really refocused your attention on Windows and what it could be. Tell me about that process, because it does feel like a big shift today. Well, I mean, all of those statements that uh, you said I've made earlier are all still true, because Windows doesn't live in isolation. Because Windows lives in a world where there is a lot of cloud computing. There's multiple cloud providers. So anything that is a client operating system ultimately does rendezvous with cloud computing. So in that sense, technically and business model-wise and usage and experience-wise, it's the cloud and the edge. And so Windows to us, the billion-plus users of Windows, for sure, we think of it from a distributed computing architecture perspective as the edge of Azure. Uh, and you could even say the Windows folks would look at Azure as the cloud for a Windows. So that's, that's I think, uh, absolutely right. Uh, the other point is... It also lives in an ecosystem. We, let's say Windows has a billion users. So does Android. So does iOS, right? Uh, in fact, Android and iOS will have more than a billion users, perhaps. Uh, or maybe Android has 2 billion. Maybe iOS is similar to Windows size or what have you. But the reality is any Windows user, we have to start with the assumption that they have a phone. And that phone may be Android and iOS, and we have to design for it. So I do think that operating systems are important but they're important insofar as they compose with everything else that's part of my life, whether it's other devices with other operating systems, whether it is clouds that I use, which are uh, powering some of the applications and experiences. That's well, So it's sort of both a practical reality, Nile. It's not even about some dogma of mine or ours. It's just like, let's meet the users who are Windows users, where they are, and meet their current needs and unmet, unarticulated needs. You don't think that the pandemic pushed Windows in a different direction? That was very much the sense. Oh, for sure. That I got was everyone is home for a year. Everyone is working from home. Everyone is staring at a Windows laptop for many more hours of a day than they might have been previously. Absolutely. There is no question about that. What happened in the pandemic, even for me, uh, I mean, I'm the classic. Like, I didn't have a home office. <laughs> and suddenly I find myself like, oh, my God, not only do I need a home office, I have all my girls home and they need all their own independent PCs. And uh, without the PC, uh, we wouldn't be able to do remote education, remote work, you know, telemedicine visits. So it became mission critical. And even that point about like, you know, all screens in our life matter. So that, that realization that larger screens on which Windows runs, in fact, are super important because not all tasks can be done on just a mobile device uh, became abundantly clear. So yes, we come out of the pandemic with, I would say, a renewed sense of why we need to do some of our very best work in serving just our customers we have today. And that uh, that's why I think about, you know, I would say, improvements to Windows update, I want to celebrate as much as any feature because it's important. It matters to our users. They tell me in my inbox loud and clear every day about what all I should be doing with Windows update. And I take that seriously now. I like the idea that you were at home and your family was at home and suddenly Windows update got real for you too. Yeah, it is. My team is always telling me that Whenever it's about me, it becomes much more important. Was there any of that going on? Like, Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, although I, I'll have to admit that people inside the company are a lot more responsible than waiting <laughs> for a CEO to sort of have a personal experience. We have better systems, better accountability. But that said, to your point, is it, you know, personally touch me that 
if I go back to even your decision-making framework, right, I, I think I have a better appreciation coming out of this pandemic about Windows' role in the world as an ecosystem, as an operating system. What should we do so that, one, uh, we are serving the current customers and their expectations, Windows Update being one, and also what should its innovation vector be given where the world is going? So that brings me to some of the big changes in Windows, which are fundamentally about what kind of operating system Windows is going to be and what kind of businesses can you run on it and what kind of business will it be for, for Microsoft? So there is a new user interface. The start button is in the center of the screen. There's cosmetic differences, but you're also allowing Android apps to run on Windows. You are integrating the Amazon Android App Store. You've made some changes to the store economics. You've reduced Microsoft's cut to 15%. That's in comparison to the very controversial 30% that Apple charges. And then you're saying to developers, you can be in our store and you, you can not pay us a cut at all if you want to use your own payment model. How much of that is opportunistic changes? You see all the controversy and you sense a market opportunity. And how much of it is this is actually the correct way to shift our business? I think it's sort of driven by, I would say, competition. What I mean by that is, what should Microsoft do to manage the platform and the platform rules such that we can thrive in that role? So the way I've interpreted what platforms do is they have to create opportunity for people who build on the platform. That's the way to keep a platform relevant, right? If you're creating uh, a great opportunity for others to be born on your platform and scale on your platform. I've always felt like, you know, at Microsoft, that's the Microsoft I grew up in. That's the Windows I grew up with, uh, whether it is the Adobe folks creating their uh, creative cloud or SAP building their ERP business, or in today's world, it's whether it's Discord uh, building their community for gamers uh, on Windows or any other business. So to me, how do we then go make that uh, role of Windows more vibrant going forward. Uh, and I sense a real opportunity, right? Because in some sense, what has happened is the other two ecosystems that are at scale, uh, for their own internally consistent set of reasons, uh, have, I think, conflated, at least in my mind, what is sort of the platform and the aggregation layer with one set of rules. There's no reason why there should be one set of rules. Uh, they can be disaggregated. After all, we do have a store. We do have commerce. You can use it all uh, or you can bring your own. So that's sort of how I think it's practical thing to, for Microsoft to do. I'm not even sort of trying to make some value statement that Microsoft's virtuous here and others are not. Uh, others have chosen it for whatever reasons they have. This is a design choice as much as a, and a business model choice. I want to make our own set of design and business model choices so that creators find more choice, right? I mean, that's competition. So that's kind of the, the, uh, the way I go back and say, hey, it's time to compete. So you, you mentioned the other two platforms at scale. That's obviously iOS and Android. And then you said internally consistent reasons for their decisions. Apple has been pretty clear about its internally consistent reasons for saying the store extends our, across our entire platform. The loudest one is this is how we pay for giving the software away for free. So everybody gets iOS updates for free over the life of their phone. The phones last a long time. And to pay for all of that innovation, 
and software and security updates and all those things, we take a cut of what happens in the store. And that's our business model. You also give Windows away, right? If I have a new PC, I'm just going to be able to update to Windows 11 for free. How do you pay for that update if you're not going to take a cut of everything? Well, we have different business models. In many cases, we have subscriptions. We also have OEM royalties. Apple obviously has device gross margin. I think everyone ultimately has to have a business model that allows to pay for what they do. I think it's just a question of where are you monetizing and what are then the rules on which fundamentally others can monetize, right? And they have to be long-term stable. In our case at Microsoft, I've always felt that at least the definition of a platform is if something bigger than the platform can't be born, then it's not a platform. So the web, as I, you know, it grew up on Windows. People like, like, think about it, right? If we said, oh, you know what? All of commerce is only mediated through us. Like Amazon couldn't exist, right? If we had somehow said, oh, we're going to have our own commerce model. So therefore, I think each company has to choose and see what aggregation layer, what platform layer, what rules work for them and their ecosystem. Uh, but in our case, I think at this, you know, it's very clear to us that we do want to solve for the same security issues, discoverability issues, because that's one of the reasons why we're emphasizing the store. But at the same time, the store can be used at different levels by different creators. And we want to have that flexibility be a competitive differentiation. We're going to take one quick break, but when we come back, I'll talk to Satya about Microsoft's desire to differentiate itself from the competition, while at the same time having to work with many of those companies. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Decoder. Let's talk about, you mentioned rules. Let's say I'm a like a VP at Microsoft, the VP of The Verge at Microsoft. And my goal for the year is to increase Verge signups by 30%. 
I'm guessing you set higher goals for your VPs than that, but I'm giving myself an easy one. Like the easiest way for me to do that is to go to the Windows team and say, every time you open Windows, show people the Verge. Push them towards a sign up to the Verge. This is a pressure that every operating system feels. Windows has certainly felt this push and pull. You know, the Edge team wants Edge to be the default browser in Windows. How do you balance that internal pressure out against wanting to be an open platform where competitors can succeed against Microsoft's own products? Yeah, so there's two different things, right? One is you curating a set of experiences that work well with each other and then allowing for someone else to curate an experience that sort of perhaps is a substitute to something, whether you allow that only through your sort of store or other rules, or is that something that can happen independent of you, right? So to, to think, take the browser, which is at this point pretty foundational. We, of course, have a browser. Uh, it is default, but you don't need to go to Microsoft. You can go to Google and download their browser, or you can go to Firefox and download their browser. So in some sense, that ability, right, to have both agency as a consumer to directly choose and at the same time, preserving our right to curate and, quite frankly, the right of others to curate as well, right? So that's sort of when I say we want to be a platform for platform creators, not just to, oh, we're a platform for other people's apps. That's, I think, the subtle difference we want to call out, which is I want us to do a great job of being a platform. That means all the things platforms do. We'll have a store. We'll have our own defaults. We will curate stuff. Uh, but if somebody else can come in and create lots of value on our platform and use it at sort of just, I'll call it the base infrastructure OS level, so be it, including a store. And guy, by the way, that's how I run, we run our cloud, right? So it's not like this is that different to us, which is, you know, we have all the layers in the cloud from the applications all the way to infrastructure and different application vendors and companies use it in different ways. It's funny that you brought up browsers, right? Microsoft famously fought an antitrust battle about bundling the browser with Windows and setting it as the default. And it feels like the rules of the road there are a little bit clearer, right? There's a lot of history about browser defaults in, in Windows. What about places where it's less clear? Do you have internal rules? Do you have a culture that says, okay, we can set a default, but the Windows team needs to build the hooks for other platforms, other services to be defaults? Oh, absolutely. There is no question uh, that, first of all, whatever we learned out of sort of our case in the 90s means that you just need to be an open platform. There are certain things that are built into the operating system. And if there are things that are independent of the operating system, then others can absolutely substitute without compromising the integrity of the system, right? So that's sort of like even take communications, whether it's Slack or Zoom or anything else, can be first class on Windows, Right. So in some sense, we don't have that restriction that other people's software uh, in its full glory cannot be available on Windows. Uh, we do have distribution advantages, but that doesn't mean that other people don't have their own distribution advantages. For me, whenever I visit some Google site, they're very clear about their distribution advantage, <laughs> even on a Windows PC. Right. I mean, there's just no way to escape that. And so is and, and, and that's OK. How many Google sites do you visit in a day? Uh, probably YouTube, I think, is the one that uh, most often comes up on my Bing search. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, probably YouTube. 
Speaking of Google, you you are bringing Windows closer to Android. That's been going on for some time. One of the biggest announcements of Windows 11 is that Android apps will run directly on Windows. What were the pros and cons of that decision? Interestingly enough, the Windows architecture has always had this, right, which is you could have multiple personalities uh, in Windows. In fact, I remember when I first started at Microsoft, uh, I was evangelizing the POSIX interface on top <laughs> of Windows NT. And uh, uh, and now, I mean, one of the favorite features of Windows for me is WSL. I love it. The new terminal and the fact that now we even support the full UI, Linux UI on Windows. So Linux is now first class on Windows. And so Android is just another subsystem. So now we can support these multiple personalities. So the question, decision for us was, What's the best way to both allow for more of the applications to be available to our users? How can we add value to the 1.3 billion users who may want more applications? So that's one side of it. Uh, The other side of it is to create, quite frankly, more opportunity for people who have uh, built Android apps uh, by exposing them uh, to this billion plus user uh, base. So I think that there is, you know, both sides benefit from this. And so it was a fairly straightforward decision to go enable that. And now it's going to be driven by what is the adoption? What are the use cases? What apps do they want to use uh, that are Android uh, on Windows versus PWAs versus UWPs and what have you? So we're going to take that approach where we welcome all apps. What was the best argument you heard against it? I think it's always uh, the argument will be, do we have to have a consistent app model Because if you sort of think about the next feature of innovation, let's call it there is some kind of a NUI or even um, AI chip that we want to light up. How can the APIs of that be lit up in such a way that this application can take advantage of it, right? So when you have multiple subsystems and multiple app models, can you surface your platform system level innovation such that all apps uh, light up. And uh, that is going to be the, the fundamental challenge in such a world. But we feel that there are ways. So, so one of the ways I look at this thing, you can take enlighten an Android app or a PWA app or a UWP app on Windows in the future or even today uh, for some of the new AI APIs. So that's kind of how I see it. So I, I face that as even an app developer, right? So which is at Microsoft, we build for iOS, we build for Android, we build for Windows. In fact, that's kind of one of the fundamental challenges. Uh, So we're trying to make sure that as developers, we can leverage as much of the common code base, as much of the cloud, as much of even the client, but at the same time, be native on each platform. Just along those lines, Android apps now run on Android. They run on Chrome OS. They're going to run on Windows. Do you see them becoming sort of the lowest common denominator application environment for a developer that just wants to hit everything without some of those opportunities that native development bring? Well, I mean, I think, you know, whether it is the web or Android, I think gets you to multiple places faster, and then you optimize uh, on those platforms uh, based on what you, you your users tell you, because the last thing anybody wants is an app uh, that's there, but nobody's using or nobody's liking. So therefore, ultimately, it'll be, it has to be competitive. But that is the experience of Android apps on Chrome OS. Just, just to be really direct, you can do it, We've covered it a lot. It's not great. What's going to make this great? One, we're going to see, quite honestly. I mean, I'm mostly interested in saying, what do app developers start doing uh, once they have traction on Windows with an Android app, which is, are they then going to extend it 
to take advantage of some native capability uh, or is just the system level work we have done with all of the things that it inherits going to make it possible? Because I look at even the way we do this, you know, let's take Snap. But in, in fact, my usage of it, it's been pretty cool. Like I've always said, oh, God, how do I get, let's say, the New York Times app or the Wall Street Journal app itself? And then see it, you know, alongside, say, some PWA app and all of the windowing work, and it works beautifully. And so uh, now the question is, what is uh, the experience for the users? And they'll vote with their clicks. You're partnered with Amazon to distribute Amazon apps. You said at the event, other Android app stores are, are welcome to participate in delivering to Windows. The Amazon app store right now is pretty focused on Amazon's own Fire tablets and products. It's fine. I, I would not call it great. It certainly doesn't have the, the volume that the, the Google Play Store has for Android apps. Are you expecting that it's going to get better? Do you think it's good enough now? Tell me about that partnership. I think it's a good sort of place for us to start. And, uh, uh, and I hope that more developers even sort of look at Amazon now, uh, App Store, as a way to go reach uh, more users. So therefore, I'm hoping that that, that uh, you know, benefits them and us. And as I said, I mean, if this works, you know, I would hope that even Google will take a look at it, right? I mean, if if they feel like, hey, this is a way that uh, they can increase the usage of Android apps, you know, we would welcome any other app store. And of course, there are parts of the world where already there are many substitutes to the Android app store, which in many parts could be even bigger than the Google uh, app store. And so we'll see what happens in that dynamic as well. You're passing through... Obviously, Amazon's app terms, you're not getting in the way of that relationship. It's just their store. If Google shows up, they would have you know, their store and their economics. Would you then expect the terms there to be competitive for, hey, you want to distribute Android apps to, to Windows clients? They're going to fight for developers? Yeah, that's actually a fascinating question. In fact, that's the thing, right? The world is not seen, other than perhaps on Windows, where historically you had Steam and now, you know, you have Epic, you have our store. So there are multiple marketplaces and there should be competition in marketplaces. It's kind of like there is multiple operating systems on any given operating system. If there are multiple marketplaces that are all vibrant and competing, how will it look? So that's kind of what I think uh, you've seen it in gaming on Windows. I'm hoping now we'll see it at scale on all categories. Microsoft's cut. You're taking it down to 15 percent. It's 85.15. What do you provide to developers for that 15? What's your argument that you should pay Microsoft the money, not roll your own? It's, it's, it's the discovery. It's the app verification. It's all of the things that one expects in an app store today that gives you the peace of mind that somebody is going to curate the apps, look at the security of the apps, and then make it easy for you to find the apps you want. And then, of course, the commerce capability. So as we said, and there's real cogs associated with all of that. And so we don't think of the app store as sort of a uh, as an independent business. It's sort of a utility that increases the value of the operating system at this point. It's kind of like at one point, you could say, oh, the browsers were independent and then browsers had to become part. And so app stores very much need to be part of part of operating systems at this point. We don't at all disagree with that. It's just a question of, should there be competition and flexibility? And even there, we just have our rules. This is, as I said, I'm not even trying to sort of other platforms may have other rules and users will choose. Contextually, as you and I are talking, there are antitrust bills in Congress being debated right now about digital marketplaces. Some of them are very targeted towards, you know, the Apple and Google ecosystems. Others are targeted other parts of the tech stack. Do you think Microsoft is going to come under 
under fire for, you know, the things it does with Azure or the things it does in Windows? Yeah, I mean, especially when people are sort of thinking about legislative processes, uh, that means it's not firm specific, right? So whatever rules they come up with will apply to everybody who is an industry participant. So very much so, Microsoft will be part and parcel. Uh, so the question is, what ultimately passes into law? And then we'll have to look at where Microsoft is in relation to all of that. I think that if you step all the way back, there is digital technology, I feel, comes in these two flavors, right? There is this flavor, I'll call it a factor of production. That is, it's an input to somebody else's creation. And there's another flavor where I'll call it factor of distribution, for a lack of a better word, where it's about matching supply and demand. So an operating system is actually an input to somebody else's creation. Uh, An app store is actually more a distribution capability. You blend the two and set up rules that sort of then have their own second order effects around what's happening with the competitive ecosystem around you. Uh, So I think that that's where people are going to look at it from a legislative perspective and say, hey, what set of rules allow for the most amount of surplus to get created in the broader economy? And that's a good thing. I think competition has always been the best thing that helps capitalism move forward. And uh, we will be subject to the same set of rules that everybody else will be. You mentioned ecosystems, and I want to ask you about the, the broader ecosystem that Microsoft plays in. Most people do not experience Windows on Microsoft's hardware, although the Surface products are great, but most people experience them on other companies' laptops with other companies' chips in them. Some parts of the ecosystem are doing great. Some parts are lagging behind. I'm curious where you see the Intel relationship and their roadmap versus all of the things you might want to do with custom AI hardware and the other features you've discussed. Yeah, I mean, first of all, to us, the Intel relationship is pretty critical and we're excited about Pat and his team and their innovation roadmap, and we'll definitely deeply be partnered with them. And so will we uh, with AMD and Qualcomm. But your, your question is a fascinating one, right? So one example, the PC has always stood for that very broad design sort of uh, surface area in terms of what could one do, whether it's silicon innovation, board-level innovation, ASICs, that way they can get assembled, you know, what NVIDIA has done with GPUs. That is what led us to build amazing gaming PCs, amazing laptops, desktops, what have you. So I think in the next 10 years, when we look at it, what is the system on package uh, that Pat likes to talk about. I'm very excited about like what is going to be the level of innovation that's going to come about that will allow us to rethink the operating system, lighting up on that, and then there to be vibrant competition. There's innovation. When I look at Intel innovating, Qualcomm innovating, AMD innovating, NVIDIA innovating, wow. I look at that and say, I want to do a great job of bringing all that innovation to life through Windows. And then surfacing it to developers, you bring your UWP, you bring your PWA, you bring your Android app, use Windows to light up on that silicon innovation. So that's the opportunity I see. And our OEMs, right, Dell and HP and Lenovo are excited about that. Last question. You currently make one Android phone, the Surface Duo. Are you going to make more? I want to build out experiences that are always pushing 
the form function, right? So when you, you I, I like the way you said it directly. <laughs> I, I don't think of it as a substitute to the phone, right? Duo, even though in my, sometimes I dream about it as it's a phone, it's not a phone. It does have a phone functionality, but we wouldn't have built it if it was what we were trying to do was a phone. We were trying to see what's the next. Like, I love it because it absolutely is my notebook, right? It's that moleskin that I carry around with me everywhere. I do use it as a phone, but that's unique. I know that that's not the use case. But my God, do I love reading Kindle on one screen and taking OneNote notes. That's kind of my killer app. We built it for that, and I want to keep innovating on that, right? Whether it's HoloLens and what happens in the future there or Duo and what happens in the future there is I want us to take shots on goal on changes in form and function. That's great. Uh, Sachinel, thank you so much for being on Decoder. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Nilay. Thanks again to Sachin Adela for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.